If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 28. And if you've been in church any amount of time, you're probably familiar with this passage. We are going to be looking at the Great Commission tonight. Passage that probably a lot of us um, feel like we're pretty familiar with and, and probably are very familiar with. And yet, it's probably something that we need to return to on a regular basis um, because of its centrality in, in our, our life and calling. So starting in verse 17, it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you uh, for this time. God, we thank you for a chance to join together, um, to, to um, sing together, to pray together, to share in the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you for the blessings of, of church and, and the weekly gathering of believers God, we don't take that for granted. As we as we look all around our world, there are any number of places where where um, while people still meet, they they are forced to meet in secret. There is is much more danger involved um, with them meeting. God, um, you are pleased when when your people can meet um, freely, um, and so we thank you for for that in our country. Father, I pray for. Uh, our community, we continue to ask every week that you would bring revival um, to our community, God, that you would bring revival to, to this era that we are living in, God, that as we continue to see um, in, in by, by many metrics, people drifting from um, the faith, drifting from the church, drifting from your son, Jesus Christ, um, God, we ask that you would, that there would be an in-gathering that you would bring people in a conspicuous, um, miraculous way into your kingdom. We particularly pray that for our community, but God, we pray it for our state, for our nation, and for our world. Uh, Father, we need you in our lives. God, we have figured out so many different ways and so many different things to substitute for you, and yet all of them will leave us empty. Um, only you satisfy. Only you are worthy of, of our lives. So I ask for, for the people in Blunt County, I ask that you would, would, that your Holy Spirit would move in a special way in every gospel-believing, Christ-preaching church uh, in our community, and that you would draw people to yourself. Uh, we thank you for your word, and as we open it, we ask that you would shine a light on it, that, that uh, the light would illuminate the text, God, that it would illuminate our understandings, that the Holy Spirit would speak to us and apply these things to our lives and that you would use them to whatever uh, ends that you, you have in store, whether that is conviction or encouragement to God, clarify who you are and your truth um, to encourage us um, in, in our uh, devotion and calling. We thank you um, for what you're about to do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, so, you know, we talked about, I, I mentioned um, last week how I've always been interested in, in stories that I hear about how certain passages of Scripture have changed people's lives in particular. And we talked about uh, Augustine, we talked about Martin Luther last week, uh, St. Anthony, and, and just these different characters. Um, well, uh, another kind of similar kind of thing that, that people sort of pay attention to is, is, is the last words uh, of people, right? And so, so you can kind of find collected volumes of, of where they have uh, written down all the last words of famous people. And, and that's just something that people seem to find important, right? They find specific significance in the last words of somebody. Um, so here in this passage, we, we kind of find Jesus' last words. Now that you could argue that when you go to other passages of scripture and, and, and really the scriptures in general, because they are all Christ's revelation, but certainly in terms of the book of Matthew, these are the last things that Jesus says to his people, um, before he leaves. And they are rightly called the great commission, right? This is Jesus sending out his church for all time for this, a specific mission and a specific calling. Okay? And so I don't think we're wrong to look to these words and consider them to be some of the most important words in all of Scripture. It's all God-breathed. It's all important. It's all God's Word, but but unique and particularly important um, for, for our understanding of, of who we're supposed to be as followers of Jesus Christ. And so I, I wanted to talk about it today because it ties into so many of the ideas that were at the founding of our church, right? When we started um, Pleasant Grove at College Street, we started talking about the ways that we wanted to be specific about what we did and intentional about what we did. Um, there's a whole lot of those ideas that come out of just this passage alone. And certainly there's other places we can go and may go um, in the coming weeks, but, but, uniquely this passage speaks to us, okay? And so what I want to do is just kind of do a Bible study. We're going to just walk through it verse by verse and kind of see the things, um, those ideas, and refresh our minds in these things. We've had a weird year and a half, okay? Um, I, we, we've talked a lot about how, man, when in, in December of 19, man, I felt like we were clicking. We were moving on all cylinders, right? And then all of a sudden, uh, February, March hit, and 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 there the brakes were put on things in a lot of ways, and so we've had a lot of changes since then, and a lot of a lot of challenges. Um, so I think it's good for on this our anniversary to kind of go back and refresh and just sort of reset our minds towards the things that that we um, believe to be central um, to what we're doing here. Okay. So verse seventeen, it's not usually where people start when they talk about the Great Commission. Usually, they honestly start at 19, they should start at 18, but we're going to start at 17, okay? And this is the reason why, because I think it is one of the most sadly comforting passages in the entire Bible, okay? Um, it says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That is to say, these people had seen Jesus crucified, they knew he died, they knew he went to the grave, and now he is resurrected sitting in front of them. And they couldn't help but worship, but what did they also do? They doubted. Now, this is why I started with that passage, is because I feel like the case is, is that when we read a passage particularly like the, the Great Commission, man, there is this incredible challenge that we find there. And yet we also find that, man, our hearts and our lives have oftentimes been weak. They've not matched up to that. Um, we have, we have questioned the, the, 
um, practicality of these things in our daily lives. Um, and, and, and I wanted to just sort of start with that passage because I'd say you're in good company. Uh, because the disciples were there too, and and they had in some ways even even more evidence sitting in front of them. Right, Jesus was sitting in front of, them, and yet there was still a, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what is what the best way to go. I, I know what you're saying to me, Jesus, and you're saying these things, and I should just trust them openly and wholeheartedly. There shouldn't be anything in between. You raised from the dead, right? You were dead and you're alive again. I shouldn't have any reservations about anything. And yet, they did. Um, and so I think that's something, it's not something that we should use as a, you know, as a goal. We're not like, oh, cool, I'm fine to doubt. It's, it's good. But it is, it is to say, maybe these things are common to us, right? As, as, as fallible and finite people. But then Jesus says this in verse 18. And he came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this is something I say over and over again. And again, I'm going to apply these passages, maybe not in the typical way that, that we could talk about them. But, but when we read that passage, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want to remind us, we don't need gimmicks. We shouldn't want them, even if they did work. Because Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. When we do things the way we do, we're not just doing them because we're wanting to be old-timey or anti-modern or fuddy-duddies or I don't even know what words people would, would use. Um, maybe I am a fuddy-duddy because I don't even know what the cool words would be, right? Um, you know, we're not just like, man, I'm against this newfangled way they're doing church these days, and, and that's that's not what we're doing. It's that we actually are trying to believe that Jesus is in control of everything. He's told us throughout his word, and particularly in this passage, what we should be about, what we should be doing. And again, I'm of the opinion that all things, anything in the attraction, uh, attractional realm we do, or the church does, are typically done to replace something that we should have been doing already. Does that make sense? So what happens is the Bible says you should be living this way and speaking this way and doing these things and presenting Christ to the world in this way, and we go, I don't really want to do that, but I could have this really interesting, attractive thing over here that would draw people in, and then we wouldn't have to worry about that stuff as much. Now again, I'm, that's a that's a broad blanket statement. I'm not saying that I can't I can't speak for every single situation in every single church, but I feel like that's typically the way it works. But here's the deal: I think the scriptures tell us if we are prayerfully and faithfully serving, loving, telling people about God, that He will bless that. Nothing happens that is outside of Jesus' authority. Only let us be faithful. That's the deal. Because I think the case is this. Oftentimes we will go, yeah, we're not going to do any of that other stuff. We're going we're, we're to live by the gospel. We're going to live by prayer. We're going to live by faith in Jesus. But then our prayer and gospel and faith in Jesus is probably not where it should be. So we refuse to do this, but then we refuse to this, do this too. 
But Jesus says, be faithful in these things. So let's be prayerful. Let's serve people. Let's tell people the good news. And he gives us a blueprint, I think, of that in this this very passage. It certainly can be fleshed out in other places in Scripture, but the basics are all right here. Verse 19, go, therefore. Or as we've talked about before, that passage isn't just about going somewhere else, but the concept of as you go. That is, making disciples isn't just for professional Christians who lay down their jobs and and vocations here and travel overseas or go into vocational ministry or something like that. It's not a special trip you go on, the mission that Jesus has called us to. It's not a special time you carve out where you say, most of the week I live my regular life, but in this special time is when I do what Jesus has told me to do and live on mission for him. No, what do we do? We go. We, as we go, we do these things. As we go throughout our lives and as we live our lives, we make the mission of Christ part and parcel with everything we do. It's not a compartmentalized box of our lives. It is part of the warp and woof of everything that we do. And so as we go, what do we do? We make disciples. Jesus says, as you go, make disciples. Notice it doesn't say, as you go, be a disciple. It says, as you go, make disciples. Now, I don't make that distinction to say you shouldn't be a disciple. Obviously, we're supposed to be disciples of Jesus. But I think that there's a specific something being said, and that is that it is intrinsic to being a disciple that we are making disciples. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, that is a follower of Jesus, someone who has come to trust and follow him, then part of your life necessarily should be making disciples also. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, and we help others to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. The question is, well, how do we do that? How do you be a disciple? How do you, how do you follow Jesus um, and make disciples the way Jesus made disciples? Well, if we look at Jesus' life, if we look at the Gospels, he seems to primarily do that through relationships. And that's not to say that it can't happen in other ways, that, that you can't have a big kind of something like a Billy Graham kind of revival where, where lots of people come and hear the word preached or or walk into a bathroom and find a track laying on the toilet paper dispenser or something. I'm not saying those things couldn't bring somebody to Jesus Christ and even lead them into a life of following Jesus Christ. But that's not the normal way. We see this in studies all the time. Uh, something like 80, 90% of people who have trusted in Jesus Christ say, the reason why I came to Jesus Christ is because a close friend or family member told me about him. They shared the gospel with me, and I came to believe through that. And so that's what we see. He entered into relationships with people, and he shared his life with them. He taught them. He modeled. He gave them opportunities to minister and to make disciples themselves. And so I think that's the main way that we're supposed to be doing this, right? And the main way we're supposed to be focusing on making disciples. We've talked about it again, and we're, we're just kind of rehashing a lot of things that we, that we bring up here and there. Remember when we talked about the one three twelve model? Or you could maybe say it the one 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 comma three or four comma twelve model. 
okay? We talk about the fact that as we make disciples and are disciples, we need one-on-one relationships of intentionality and accountability and transparency. Transparency. And we probably need three of those. We need a Paul, we need a Timothy, and we need a Barnabas in our lives. And again, that's a hard thing to do sometimes. It's a hard thing to find all those people. Um, I'll be honest, I don't have all of those people right now. But maybe it's something that we can shoot for in terms of uh, the way we are discipled, being disciples and making disciples. Jesus had one friend that seems to have been closer to him than all the others, and that was the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he also had this group of three or four that he was closer to than the rest of the disciples. James, John, and Peter, and then sometimes Andrew gets thrown into that mix. We talk about that group being the inner circle that Jesus had. And so we've shared, especially in the men's ministry a couple of times, where we've talked about this concept of fire teams. Um, and fire teams and is, is the, is the smallest, uh, unit that the military recognizes. Okay. And it is usually a group of three or four people. Um, and, and they are there to be each other's backup, right? And so in, in a combat situation, as people are going all over the place, get shot at and you have objectives to fulfill, your group of three or four says, no, we're going to stick together. And we're going to watch each other's back, and we each have different skills and different focuses and different specialties, and we're going to use those to keep the rest of my group safe, and then and then we're going to move forward and accomplish our goals. And I think there's a sense in which that's exactly what we do. You need some people like that. You need those ones, but man, you need a you need a, a, a group that's a little bigger than that too. A group of three or four, maybe guys that you're in, getting into the word with and going deeper than you would in other con, uh, uh, other conversations. Jesus had that. These guys who had unique access, uh, unique opportunity to make observations in Jesus' life and ministry. I'll be honest, a a piece of this that we probably don't talk about enough is family discipleship. Uh, If if you have a family and you've got um, a husband, a wife, um, maybe maybe in-laws, a couple of kids, I mean, you're a fire team. And so your family unit makes up a discipleship unit. It doesn't mean that you don't have another one over here also, um, but it certainly means that, that you're specifically focused on, on each other in a unique way in terms of how you grow. And then finally, Jesus had this group of 12, right? His squad. Um, and, and that's even t- t- technically a military term. Three fire teams make up a squad. So we talk about squad goals and all those things like that. That's not exactly the way we're using it, but, um, but sort of, right? Sort of squad goals. Okay. Um, our small groups function in those ways in some ways. And you know what I would love? I would love for our small groups to have squad goals. I would love for our small groups as we've talked about trying to mix them up a little bit to, to, to make them more, um, all kinds of things, right? Um, more outreach, more discipleship, uh, more accountability, um, people actually getting to, to connect and know each other a little bit better. Um, those are great squad goals. For a group of about 12, um, does it have to be your small group? Certainly not. I would love it if we would see those kind of groups form in our workplaces. 
in our extended families, in, in, in maybe friend groups that you've got outside of, of the context of church. Small groups serve those functions, and it's one of the reasons, again, that we, we push small groups. And here's the deal, man. If you're not in a small group, there's a danger there. Part of the reason why we wanted to, to mix up small groups a little bit this year was because I feel like I don't get to – there's lots of y'all that I don't get to know. Because I don't, if you're in another small group that I'm not going to, I see you on Sunday a lot of times. Um, and, and then that's about it. Right? Um, when, when we were in a different living situation, we were much more intentional about having people over and trying to use that as the way to, to, to get connected to people that weren't in our weekly cycles of, of stuff. But since we moved to this farmhouse and we don't have a kitchen and there's, it's, unbearably hot and all these things like that. We haven't done that a lot, but, but it, it makes me worried, right? Because there's some of you that I still, man, I just don't know as well as, as I would like to. Um, we had, uh, we've had people who have come into our church over the course of, of COVID. And then because I wasn't, we weren't meeting in the same small groups and then they moved on to a different stage of life and left the church um, for, for completely normal and good reasons. And I looked up and said, I never got to know that person. I don't know anything about them. I know their name. I know their basic life situation, but I never got to dig into their life. I don't want to do that. Somebody needs to know you here. And so that's what small groups are about, right? Somebody needs to be able to say, I know what's going on in their life. I know the struggles they're going through. I know the joys that they have, and I want to be uh, part of that. And the church should be a part of that. But those groups... Um, that's not the extent of it, right? That's not the, the, the discipleship doesn't just fall into that one, three, uh, 12 kind of model. But man, that's a good place to start. It's a good place to kind of say, do I have these kind of relationships um, in, in the church? I was disturbed a couple of days ago. I told you last week, I'm listening to all these like podcasts that get me anxious and I should listen to him, but I do. Um, and he was talking about, he was talking about um, this survey that was done of, of younger Christians, typically under 30. And the number of, when they were asked the question, do you think it is wrong to proselytize? Meaning, do you think it is wrong to try to convert someone to your faith? And it was this nuts number, like 50 or 60% of, of self-identifying Christians said, yeah, it's wrong to proselytize. And I was like, it's a problem, guys, because that's like the whole job, right? That's that's who we are. We are proselytizing people, okay? Um, we use the word evangelize because we specifically recognize that we are giving people the good news, not just trying to bring them over to a different religion. But, man, that's a problem if a significant portion of our church, not our church, but the church, thinks that it is wrong, morally wrong, to try to convert somebody to the faith. Making disciples is our first and primary calling as Christians. And moreover, the Bible says we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to go to all nations. Now, I'm, I'm going to use this in a little different way than we probably usually do, because I think probably the case is when you or, or anybody else studies this passage or preaches on it, Typically, the first thing we think is that is a command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? It's to take the gospel everywhere. And I think it is that. That's usually the way we, we read it, and it is. But I just want to sort of angle it a little bit different. 
it also implies that there is no one for whom the gospel is, there's, the gospel is for everybody. There's nobody out there who the gospel is not for them. Well, my foreign friends aren't interested in the gospel. My gay friends aren't interested in the gospel. My liberal friends are not interested in the gospel. My conservative friends are not interested in the gospel. Whether they're interested in the gospel is, is on them. Um, I, 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 we, can, we can't do that. But I can tell you this. The gospel is for all of them. It is for all nations. It is for all peoples. And we are supposed to tell all nations and all peoples the good news of Jesus Christ. We believe in the beauty of the gospel unadorned. Again, we don't have to gussy up the message of the gospel to make it more attractive. The gospel is as attractive as it could be. Anything that we do to it is going to take away from it, even if we think we're trying to add to it. The power of Christ working in people's lives, the regenerating activity of the gospel, of the Holy Spirit by the gospel, changes people's lives. Again, sometimes it's part of a long process of conviction and coming to faith. Sometimes it is in a moment. And we all know those stories, and some of us have those stories, right? Where we were just walking along, lost as a goose one day, and, and Jesus brought us to an awareness of our sin and, and the salvation that we can have in Jesus Christ. Others of us were raised in the church and we heard it little by little and it happened so gradually that all we can do is kind of look back and go, man, I don't even, I don't even know exactly when I really believed. It was always there, but I know I believe now, right? And that's what's important. But if you had to, if I had to put a, 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 a stick pen on a calendar somewhere, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. That's okay. Any of those, either of those is the case. The point is, the gospel changes people's lives. And I've confessed to you a number of times, I often doubt in that area, just like the disciples did at the beginning. There are many times in my life where I look at somebody and I think, you know what, I could share the gospel with this person, but I don't think it's going to make any difference because they're not interested, they don't care, and, it, and it's, and it's going to be wasted. But the truth is, we can never have that attitude. It may fall on deaf ears, and yet we know that because the gospel is powerful, that in a second, that in a moment, the Holy Spirit can regenerate somebody and their life can be changed. And so what we find, again, in this passage is that the gospel is for all nations and all peoples. And as people come to faith, we are to initiate them into the nurturing community of the church. So notice what it says next. It says we, we, we go to all nations. We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, again, we could talk about a lot of different things about what baptism means, the context of that, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and we get into all kinds of stuff just in that passage alone. But I want to zoom in on two things. Baptism has always, in throughout the history of the church, one, it has been the primary moment of public declaration of faith. Okay, so in the Baptist church, we have this thing that we've done for years, probably since the Second Great Awakening, where we walk an aisle. 
right? And that is that first moment of half the time where you say, I'm declaring my life for, for Jesus Christ. You walk an aisle. So much so that that is, I think, probably in many Baptist circles, become the de facto coming out as a Christian. Except here's the deal. That's not the way it's been throughout most of the history of the church. Baptism was that moment. Okay. There was often a process of, of catechism and you would, you would teach somebody who had, who was interested in the faith, uh, these things, and, and they would come to faith and believe. But the moment that everybody found out they were a Christian would be at their baptism. So baptism has always been about identifying with Jesus Christ, but it has also been the moment that you were initiated into the church. All right. It was the official sort of welcoming and ceremonial um, attaching of your life with the life of the church for, for pretty much all of church history. And that's why church attendance, church membership, the accountability and the responsibility and the community of believers, those are things that we're unapologetic for. There's lots of people in the world who are like, man, that church is dumb. I don't know how it fits in people's lives. Like, I don't need that. I can be spiritual on my own. I can go out to the mountains, and I can go to the golf course, and I can go to the lake, and I can worship God all I want to. And the answer is, man, I guess you can. But there is no concept of that in the Scriptures. There is no concept of being a Christian off on your own, doing your own thing outside of community. The whole context of Christianity in the Bible is in the church. And so we're unapologetic about that. Even though the world, and particularly in, in many corners, the American church has kind of ab- abandoned some of those ideas. You know, sociologists continue to comment on the rise of these this group of people that they're calling the nuns. Not nuns like the flying nun, convent nuns but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. And that is people who, when they fill out a survey, they, they list no religious affiliation, no association with any faith or, or church or denomination. Those numbers have skyrocketed in the last two, the, the two newest generations, Gen Z or Gen I or whatever they're calling it, and in the millennial generation. Those numbers have gone off the charts of people who have no affiliation with the church. Evangelizing and making disciples probably doesn't begin with going to church. Again, I think that's maybe a a, a problem that the church has had over, over the last who knows how long. You always hear people say, you know what you need to do with your friends? You need to invite them to church. You need to invite them to church. Let the pastor tell them about Jesus. Let a professional Christian tell them about Jesus. Well, I, I don't have a problem with you inviting them to church. I want you to invite them to church, but you need to tell them about Jesus. Because that's your job as a disciple. My job, too. But our job as disciples. Again, the process may not begin at church, but under normal circumstances, it definitely arrives at the church at some point. People who found substitutes for the church out in the world, that is not a biblical picture. So, so again, my charge to you would be, man, plug in. Participate, connect, serve, give. 
if those things are a hassle to you in some way, then you're doing it wrong, right? Something's off. Um, you've got some mixed up ideas in your head about, about what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Again, man, we could talk for days about what that means and the depths of that. But, but at the very least to say this, our discipleship is specifically obedience focused. And therefore it is particularly word focused. So as we come to Christ's words found in the scriptures, that word is going to direct us to do all kinds of things. Acts of service, uh, postures of, of personal spirituality, practices of life and mission. But living out Jesus' commands, our observance, our obedience of what he has commanded us to do is, is central. I think I said it at, at, a, at y'all's wedding ceremony uh, two weeks ago. Jesus has saved us from something, but he has also saved us for something. And that for something is obedience, holiness, and, and uh, living as Christ's followers in that family of God. It doesn't make much sense to try to follow Jesus if you're not interested in following Jesus. If you're not interested in walking after him and doing the things that he has told you to do and living the ways that he has modeled for us, then you may believe in him, but you're not really a disciple of him because disciples don't just believe in who they follow. They follow who they follow. And that begins with the word. Growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then we close um, with this. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So again, I think the case is, is we are living in an epochal era. And maybe lots of people feel that way, right? When things are kind of turbulent in their society. But man, I think there are, Big, crazy things going on in American culture, in church, in Christian culture, and in, and in Western civilization as a whole. Again, once upon a time, we probably could have said, you know what, I, I watch the news and, and I read these articles and magazines about all the crazy stuff going on, but man, I live in a small, southern, Bible Belt kind of town. Man, these don't, things don't affect me. Like, they just go over my head. This is... We're in flyover country, right? These things, I'm good. Um, that may be the way it works in New York or Los Angeles or London or Paris or something like that, but that's not what's going on in my life. Except here's the problem. A couple years ago, they invented this thing called the Internet. And since then, even though we, we especially in places like the South, we don't feel it yet, but there's no such thing as Southern culture anymore. There's no such thing as American culture anymore. We are fast moving to the point where there will only be world culture because everything spreads everywhere in an instant. An ideology that is, that is, is just in a, in, in, you know, the halls of the Ivy League schools or in some crazy think tank 
um, in some other country, man, it doesn't take decades or centuries for those ideas to develop and spread out anymore. They happen overnight. And again, that, that's not to say that there hasn't been buildup and other things, and it's a, it's a complicated process and everything, but it is to say, man, we are living in an era where everything changes instantly, all the time. And there's no place that is protected from that anymore. We, we talk a lot about globalizing of industry and go, globalizing of economics. The real danger and the real thing that's going on is the globalization of ideas, the globalization of worldviews. It took us hundreds of years to evangelize the world. A new religion today that a cult that pops up could evangelize the entire world in, in a week with the right marketing campaign. They had enough money. Bob Dylan, the times they are changing. Now that may seem terrifying to you. It's terrifying to me. That's why I said again, man, I gotta stop listening to these podcasts. Um, cause they get me worked up. But it doesn't take into account that really, man, things have always been like that in some ways. Now again, they don't, they don't change all the time and as quickly, but there have been other epochal eras. If you lived during the Black Plague, it was crazy time to be alive. If you lived during the collapse of the Roman Empire, it was a crazy time to be alive. And it probably seemed like all of the moorings of life and society and faith and family and everything else were letting go. A lot of times we have a sense that things have always been the way they are and they're always going to be the way they are. But it doesn't take long reading a history book to realize that's not true. Probably the life that you live right now is a very unique little situation that will exist for a few decades, maybe a hundred years, and then something new will show up and it'll be radically different. And the whole world will shift. And you know what those people will think? They'll think this is the way things have always been. And this is the way they're always going to be. The truth is they won't, though. And again, they never have been. Nothing's going to stay the same, but here's the deal. Jesus always stays the same. Jesus never changes. The gospel is always relevant. Jesus says, I'll be with you always, even till the end of the age. That is to say, it doesn't matter what age you live in. What the circumstances are of history while you're alive, I'll be there with you. Nothing's going to surprise me. Nothing's going to change the gospel. Nothing will happen, success or failure, in any place, in every place, in every era. No matter the challenges, Christ will be there and the gospel will be the answer. Guiding, animating, and empowering the church for all of time. So I'll close on this. I've shared this story before. It's just one of my, my favorite little anecdotes from, from church nerdery. Um, so back in the mid part of the last century, um, there were these two guys, one named Carl Barth, who was a theologian, um, who, who's, who's known for this sort of new kind of way of thinking about church and theology in the Bible called neo-orthodoxy. And there's another guy 
another evangelical theologian um, who was the founding editor of Christianity Today. His name was Carl F.H. Henry. And they were sort of sparring partners because they had very different versions uh, and views about about what the Bible meant and salvation and life and God and, 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 and everything. And one day they were in a conversation, and basically Karl Barth, um, Henry said to Karl Barth, they were talking about the resurrection, and, and Barth's views on the resurrection were, were odd. Um, he didn't believe that it was an actual event exactly. It was sort of this spiritual concept and different things. But, but at one point, Henry turned to him and said, do you believe that the resurrection actually happened? Do you believe that these reporters who are here interviewing us and listening to us, if they could go back and live in the first century, that they would have had something to report on when Jesus raised from the, the dead, that news, an event had actually happened. And Barth was trying to be cute, and he said, are you sure you work for Christ, Christianity today? Because that sounds like Christianity yesterday. And the largely liberal crowd erupted in laughter, and they thought that was hilarious. And Carl Henry, straight face, said, Christianity yesterday, today, and forever. And that's the truth, right? Nothing has changed about Jesus. The world may be changing every single day, but Jesus hasn't changed. The gospel has not changed. It is still the power to save, and it is still our job our calling to go and make disciples. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are exactly what you have told us you are in your word. God, that you are good and gracious and loving. God, that you are a God of holiness and justice and power. That you have always been, that you are now, and you will always be. God, that there is never a moment when you do not see your people. When you do not know the world that they live in. When you do not know the challenges they face. Whether that is on a world level or a national level or a church level, or an individual level. That your son Jesus Christ is with us at all times, in every place. And he has called us to a great calling. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to, to be reinvigorated. Um, God, that you would remind us of this great calling that you have on our lives. God, that we would not live compartmentalized lives where we have work and we have family and we have friends and we have hobbies. And then we also have church and, and faith. But that our faith would permeate everything. That everything would be seen in light of that. That everything would be seen in light of the calling that you have on our lives to go and make disciples of all nations. Father, that we would do that with honesty and humility, but God, that we would also do it with boldness, carrying the truth with us, but speaking it in love to everyone that we meet. Father, help us to do that. 
Help us to, to live that way, and we pray that your spirit would go before us, that you would till up the field before we get there. God, that you would bring the rains and that you would water the seeds um, that are planted. God, and that you would nurture, um, that you would weed, that you would give the sunlight, and that you would bring people into your kingdom and your family. We ask these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. good discipleship song right that's a good make disciples song that picture of saying we're on a path and jesus is my vision he is out in front of me um everything i see i see through him um everything i do is a function of him working in me and so man there's all kinds of things to try to get me distracted man's empty praise things trying to to pull me off to the side make me forget about the task that it's at hand but no god is our vision he's ahead of us Jesus is walking before us, um, and we are called to be faithful to continue to follow him. Amen? Um, that's a good song. Cheeto earlier was just like, man, I don't know if I picked the right songs. Yeah, that's a good one. That's right. Um, it's good to see you. I've been blessed to share these last four years with you. I hope we get to share many more um, together. Uh, I love you guys. Um, 
We'll see you next week. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace.